Hi, this is Brandon Gailey from Rake IQ, and you are listening to the Eat Blog Talk podcast. Hey, awesome food bloggers. Before we dig into this episode, I have a really quick favor to ask you. Go to your favorite podcast player, go to Eat Blog Talk, scroll down to the bottom where you see the ratings and review section. Leave Eat Blog Talk a five-star rating if you love this podcast and leave a great review. This will only benefit this podcast. It adds value. And I so very much appreciate your efforts with this. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, now on to the episode. Food bloggers, what's up today? How are you? Welcome to Eat Blog Talk. This is the podcast for food bloggers looking for the value and the confidence that will move the needle forward in their businesses. This episode is sponsored by Rank IQ, and it also involves the founder of Rank IQ. That's who I will be interviewing today, Brandon Gailey. I am your host, Megan Porta, and you are listening to episode number 300. Today, Brandon and I are going to have a super fun chat. He's going to share with us all we need to know about keyword research and backlinks and the importance of both of those things. Brandon Gailey is an entrepreneur who founded multiple seven-figure businesses in his 20s before becoming disabled by a rare disorder for nearly a decade. He eventually regained his health and started a blog. He grew his blog to over 1 million visitors in just 18 months after his first blog post. Today, he gets 5 million monthly visitors from over 100,000 first-page Google rankings. Brandon has taught his SEO growth hacks to over 20,000 bloggers through his podcast, The Blogging Millionaire. This past year, he launched Rank IQ, an AI-powered SEO toolset tailored for bloggers and small businesses that have a blog. This year, Rank IQ was ranked number one out of all 333 SEO tools by G2 for customer satisfaction and ease of use. Hello, Brandon. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to chat with you. I'm glad to be here. So you have a compelling and pretty incredible story. I was reading through your, what is it? It was like your story on your website just about your history and what you've been through. You and your wife have been through so much. I would love it if you just touched on it a little bit. You don't have to go through the whole story. But tell us about how you went from being an entrepreneur, creating multiple seven-figure businesses in your 20s, which is so impressive, to having issues, being mentally disabled for close to a decade and then turning into a professional blogger. Can you give us just like a rundown of all of that? Yeah. So in my 20s, I, after college, I got straight into an internet marketing company. And it was actually before Google and Yahoo was there. And it did very well. I got it into seven figures for, we were building websites that ranked number one on Yahoo. And... Then we spun off an email marketing company that was another seven-figure company. And things were going really good for, for three to four months as I was getting into my late 20s. And then I started having different uh, health issues arise. And within a matter of uh, three years, I went from multiple seven-figure companies to completely broke. And it's just one of those things as an entrepreneur – you're you're counted on for your mind because most of the times you don't have a 200 person company 
And if you're not there, everything continues to run. So when my mind went and I was no longer there, the money went fast and I began making bad decisions because my mental capacity was no longer there. So I ended up uh, just stopping all the entrepreneur stuff because it just wasn't working. And I, when I was down to my last, I think, $10,000, I moved to Houston because I was in Dallas before that. And I didn't have anything to my name except a, a used car. And I didn't have uh, enough money for a deposit or for a credit. So I had to go to Craigslist and I found someone that rented a, like a 7,500, I don't know, 75 or 100 square foot bedroom. And, and I was able to get that. And I was just uh, staying alive at that point, but God had a plan for me. And what was interesting is that I met my future wife on match.com and we started talking through match. And then when we finally went on a date and we talked about where we lived, we literally lived two blocks from each other. So like what? a five, five minute walking distance, I, I could just wow. walk, walk to her house. So, so God kind of took everything away from me. So he could place me right there, right next to where, where she lived. Now I continued to, my health didn't get better and, and the doctors couldn't figure it out. There was I guess I had over a period of about three to four years as my most of my major systems of my body began to fail. I'd seen over a hundred uh, specialists and I guess it got to probably the, the lowest point when, when I had uh, done, went to my cardiologist and they, they put me through the, uh, the different uh, tests. And, and then by the time I was driving back, I got a phone call from the lead cardiologist of the practice and he told me that I have a major heart problem and he's made room to, to have a heart cath immediately the next morning and he's lining up uh, a surgeon because he expects to find out that I need to have immediate heart surgery. And he said, go ahead and uh, call everyone that, that, that you know and let them know. And it, it wasn't so much the difficulty of hearing about it for myself. I think the hardest part is when I had to call my parents and then hear how they acted. But they they came in, had the heart cath, got out of the heart cath, and then the cardiologist came into the hospital room at that time and he said, I don't know what's going on. It's It's not anything with your heart. Um, but you need to stay here because we obviously need to figure out what's going on. And then later that evening, the, the nurse told me to go ahead and get up and I could take a shower. And I got up to uh, go take a shower and got out of my gown. And, and at that point, I, I just started feeling lightheaded. And I looked down because where they do the heart cath, they do it in your femoral artery in your thigh. And then all of a sudden, it looked like about the size of my fist came up out of my leg. <clears throat> and fortunately, my fiance was there at the time. And I sort of, I came out sort of trying to get back to the bed before I started to faint. And I fell on the bed 
and I and I was stayed stayed awake still, and that's when I heard them call out the code blue, and they sent in, starting with a couple of doctors and nurses, and and they started taking turns putting pressure on the femoral artery because there was nothing they could do to open me up and fix it in time because the blood was just flowing. So they tried to just pressure it. And I guess about the eight minute point, I guess I remember there were probably eight nurses and doctors at that point. And the doctor was looking me in the eyes, like in the movies saying, stay with me, stay with me. And I could see my fiance just kind of, up against the wall, just withdrawn and helpless. But fortunately, after another 10 minutes, they were able to uh, get it to clot. And I survived that scenario. And then I guess kept on going from doctor to doctor, over a hundred different specialists, testing everything. And then amazingly, when my body basically wasn't working in any aspect, um, my wife became pregnant with her first child. And a couple of months after she became pregnant, I was, I had someone cause I was, con- we were constantly reaching out to different friends and, and, uh, business people trying to, to get someone that can make me better. And I finally got, uh, put to this one doctor who focused on, a rare condition called dysautonomia. And he was able to diagnose me with that. And he, at that point, I was probably, probably had the mental capacity of IQ of 80. I couldn't drive a car anymore. I couldn't, uh, I, I could barely walk because anytime I got up, I had vertigo. So I, I had to use a bedpan. I mean, it, I, I couldn't do, I could barely have a conversation and keep and say a sentence. I mean, I was completely like everyone had, had just ridden me off at that point. Cause it had been about four or five years of deterioration and they just figured. So no one that I had business relationships contacted me anymore. A lot of my friends didn't contact me before because I guess it was depressing to, to see Aww. someone that was healthy and successful be just completely done and, and no one know what's happening to them. But the doctor gave me some experimental medication and I started uh, sleeping 20 to 23 hours a day for the first week to the point where my, my wife called the doctor and said, is he dying? And he was just like, no, what's, ha- what's happened is with this autonomia, he hasn't been able to, sl- to sleep basically for eight or nine years. So he's having to catch up with the sleep deficit. And once I went through that sleep, once I got all that sleep, I basically had a, a mental awakening. The physical problems with my body continued to be there, but my my brain was all of a sudden just back online after about uh, about fifteen to twenty days, and and then. But it was all for a reason because at that point, when I came back online, uh, my wife noticed. Uh, a red mark on her breast and we start, we saw a doctor and they thought it was just something to do with her pregnancy. And then, and at that point it was just, they, they, they felt a nodule about the size of a small pencil eraser eraser 
and they thought it was just tissue. But within 30 days, the size of the eraser size mark had gone to the size of an orange. So it was a tumor that, that uh, massively grew in, in 30 days. And, and then that's when they found out after the biopsy that it was cancer. And my wife was, we were sent to MD Anderson first and, and it was pretty grim. They said it was stage three inflammatory breast cancer and that our chances of survival was four, was like 60%. And then we went to Baylor for a second opinion and they said the chances of survival were actually 40%. And they said, you've got to, we've got to, we've got to immediately get in there and do the surgery this week and start uh, chemo and possible radiation. And we were just like, well, what about our, our child? And they said, well, we're worried about saving the patient and the patient is your wife. Um, we're not worried about the child at this point. So that was a tough decision because we were having to decide whether to do the treatment and possibly uh, harm our unborn son or him die in the process. So went back and and I just at the time I, I wasn't a, a Christian, but I had I'd seen a doctor who was a Christian and he. He asked if he could pray over me, and he prayed over me, asking for miracles. I didn't think much of it. But looking back on it, I can see how that played just a, a big factor because I went home, and I just felt the urge to, to start, start doing research on women that had cancer that were also pregnant. And I, within an hour, I had found some obscure study talking about how the pregnancy hormones supercharge the cancer and how that the diagnosis can be wrong because it, because the, the tumor can be blowing up, but it can still be stage one or stage zero, but they could be treating it as a stage three, stage four. So I went back to the doctor at Baylor, brought my wife there and I, and I told him the theory that I had. And he said, you know, we've, we've done the, we've, your, one thing I did notice is when they did the the, the biopsy, it, it wasn't conclusive of the cancer breaking out of the cell, cells. And he said, yeah, it's a possibility. And then I told him what would it hurt. And I, and I told him to basically take 20 points around the tumor because it's huge. And I said, what would happen if you took 20 biopsies from that tumor at different points and it all came back inconclusive as the cancer breaking out? And he said, it's not going to come back that way, but I'll do it. He said, the breast is going to be taken anyways this week. So taking the needle biopsies won't be that painful. And so my wife agreed to it. And she was pretty depressed at that point because of the whole stuff about our baby and, and the 40% survival rate. But they did it and they found out that it, it was still stage zero. So they... It didn't change the fact they had to immediately do the, the surgery, but they didn't have to do all the uh, chemo and radiation. And when it came to crisp, we had our baby and the baby was born healthy. And then Christmas came and at Christmas they did the test and it was completely gone. And she, she, she didn't have any treatment, anything. And she was cancer free and she didn't have, uh, and she hasn't, she's been cancer free since. So that was a incredible experience. 
going through that. And as time went by and had another, had another child and gradually I became healthy enough to attempt to, to start a business again. And I started a, a marketing services company, had clients and did that, but it was, I wasn't that great at it because it was just, it, it counted on, they counted on me all the time. All my clients wanted to talk to me so I could never get many clients beyond a handful because I was needed. And then I was always thinking to myself, if I get sick again, then I'm not going to, I'm not going to have this. This is going to go to zero. And that's one of my employees came to me and she asked for, for my opinion about her blog. And that night I recognized, I mean, I need to get, get a blog. So I spent the next uh, six months researching every single blog that I could, I could find and, and the ones that were successful. And I kind of eliminated the big name brands that were successful because of their name. And I was looking at who are the blogs, what are the blogs that are no names that are getting a lot of traffic? What are they doing? And one thing I noticed when I was researching these blogs is there were a bunch of them that just were terrible design, terrible content, but they were getting all this traffic. And the one thing they had in common were they were writing on these obscure keywords that had no competition. So that's what led to the foundation of when I launched my blog, I wanted to focus on keyword research and find keywords that had low competition so that I could maintain those positions and not have to constantly fight for, for being on the first page with everybody else for the big words. And that's what I did within the first uh, 18 months. I had gone from zero to 1 million monthly visitors. And it was, I started probably 60 to 70% of my posts were on low competition phrases for that first year. But by the time I saw all the results after a year, I shifted to like 95% of every single post I made was on a low competition keyword. And then at what point did you start Rank IQ? Rank IQ started, it was, it went live when we started taking users March 1st of last year. But it, the concept came up September before, before that. So I guess about a year and a half ago. And the, what was happening is I had a course and I was teaching my keyword research and how to do the different equations and to find those low competition keywords. And no matter how many times I adjusted the course, making it as simple as possible, at least 50% of my students were just like, it's beyond me. I, I can't find these. I can't do this keyword research. It's too complicated for me. And that's when I realized there had to be a better way than because all the keyword research tools were designed for SEO experts and they gave you just an enormous amount of data. And a lot of that data you'd have to run equations on just to make it work. And that's why I came up with rank IQ for the keyword research side and also AI content optimization was starting to happen, but it was really expensive. Most of the content optimization tools were just for content optimization was anywhere from 59 to $200 a month. And then your keyword tools were 99 to $200 a month. And most bloggers can't afford that. And also both of those tools, they're just, they're made for, for SEO experts and content managers that are just experts in this. 
And bloggers, they want to write their post and engage with their audience. They just, they can't understand all of this. Even I can't understand all of it without spending significant time. And so Rank IQ on the keyword side, we decided to just do all the data and algorithms behind the scenes. And for every keyword, just deliver the competition score, the estimated visitors per year, and the average time to rank, because that's the information that you needed. And the only keywords that we would put in our database would be keywords that were low competition with high traffic. So that you even for me to go through a keyword research tool, it takes me 100 plus hours to, to do the research on any type of topic and find the keywords that I could rank for. So in this case, you don't have to go to Ahrefs or SEMrush, figure out how to use it, do all the equations, go through tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of words to find 12 to 15 that you can rank for to turn into post. You can skip all of that and go to Rank IQ, and we have a drop down to where all the niches are there. Right now we have over 400 plus niches and we have 78 different sub niches in the food food niche with over 38,000 words that pretty much any low comp, low domain authority blog can rank for. All you have to do is go in there and pick off the keywords you want to write about. And then there's a button next to each one. You click run report and then that does the AI. So it tells you what topics you need to cover that Google likes the most. And it also tells you what you need to put in your title. So it kind of does everything for you so that you have the word that you want to go after and you can choose. And then it tells you what to put in your title and what to put in your content so that you can compete for a first page ranking. And that allows you to have more time available to write more posts. And if you can write twice the amount of posts per year, you're going to get twice the amount of traffic. It's a pretty simple equation. Well, I first I want to acknowledge your story before we get too far into keyword research because it is so impactful. And thank you for sharing about it. You said the word miracles and I wrote that down. As you talked through it, I just saw so many miracles. Like the fact that you were right next to your wife, miles away from her. And the fact that you came mentally aware right before you had to research your wife's diagnosis and what to do with that. I mean, what an incredible story. So thank you for sharing all of that. And then Rank IQ, I talk about this all the time to everyone. So everyone's probably like, okay, Megan, more Rank IQ. But I have a strategy this year. I don't know if I've shared with you, Brandon, exactly what I'm doing, but I'm using Rank IQ to run three posts a week through the optimizer. And it's mostly non-recipe posts. So I'm do I have a lot of content on my blog. So I'm using Rank IQ to create like roundups and informational posts that support all of my existing content because I have so much of it. And so far this year, I'm up 25% year over year from last year, which I think most bloggers are having the opposite problem right now. So there is so much power in that low competition keyword and focusing there. And you're the one that got me on to thinking about the non-recipe content. That is nothing I ever considered before I talked to you. I think it was about a year ago. But do you just want to talk about that? How there's so much more opportunity than just writing about recipes? I think it's just for most food bloggers when you, when you get involved with it. Recipes is where the majority of the traffic is. There's no doubt about it. But 
the majority of food bloggers, they're just writing about recipes. And the, the easiest thing I think we talked about in a, in a Zoom session about a year ago was all you, have to, all you have to do is go through your recipes and the ones that are main dishes, and you can write a sister post for the side dishes and what to serve with it. I mean, that's, that's the easy first step to, to, to have content that's just not recipe-based, and it's a list post. For example, you've got a salmon recipe, and then you would have your sister post, which would be what to serve with salmon. And that might have uh, 25 side dishes for salmon or 17 side dishes for salmon. Simple list post, uh, not, 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 not so hard to knock out, not as hard as a recipe post. You don't have to do all the food, food photography. And then you pair that with that and you link them together. And at the end of your recipe post, you do a tease where you give them the first three or four side dishes or things to serve with salmon and then you internally link to your side dish post. So in addition to getting all the traffic from the side dish post, you're also going to increase your average time on page by getting a percentage of the people that are reading that salmon recipe to click out to your side dish post with the teas, and that's going to allow your that recipe post to move up. So they kind of all work together when you're talking about finding sister posts with your existing recipe posts. And then to take it a step further, something I've been doing is exploring topics beyond the roundup. So if we're talking about salmon, like maybe um, a salmon marinade or something to support both. So you can kind of create this web of amazing interlinking that's all really valuable. It's been really fun. I didn't think I would find it fun when I first dove into it, but it's been really exciting because I'm actually able to revive some of my old content that's just been sitting there by giving it supporting value, if that makes sense. Yeah, identifying those popular recipe posts and building out a small cluster around that specific recipe, that's just a good practice overall for SEO. And once you've done the recipe post, and that's the hard part, all of the supporting posts around it are going to be pretty easy to knock out and then you build that cluster. And as all of these different posts start ranking, they're going to get different links from other people. And those links are all going to support each other and push that whole cluster up. Something somebody was mentioning recently when I was like, you should try Rank IQ. And one of their hangups was that they didn't want to learn another tool because you mentioned earlier, most of the SEO tools are not made for food bloggers or creators. They're made for SEO experts and more technically minded people. And that's one thing I really like about Rank IQ is that it's really easy to use. And you, there's literally like only a handful of things you can do inside the tool. So it's not overwhelming. It doesn't have that like SEM rush confusing like where do I start um, so that's kind of a something I wanted to mention just that there's no huge barrier to entry it's really approachable and I really like that you've created it like that can we talk about keyword research you talked about this a little bit how it's really daunting on other platforms there's so many keywords if you go to hrefs or SEM rush I personally don't even know where to start with it and that's why I avoided it for so many years but why is keyword research important? And speaking to bloggers who maybe 
either aren't doing it or are just dabbling in it, maybe give them a compelling argument why they should be doing keyword research? Well, you've got to find keywords that your blog can rank for. So if you're not using Rank IQ and you're using Ahrefs or SEMrush, you your your blog is going to have your domain authority if anywhere from if you're starting out and you've got zero or you're even if you're established and you're you're 60 you want to focus on low competition words because even if you're an established blogger with with a 60 plus domain authority like I have a domain authority of I think 78 and I still go after 70% of the keywords I go after are low competition because it's not that I can just rank for them. I get the number one ranking for them and getting the number one ranking is not only going to secure a significant amount of traffic because you've got the number one rankings to get 35% of the clicks. And then by the time you get to the number four ranking, you're only getting 6% of the clicks. So there's a big difference between ranking on the first page and ranking number one. Then in addition to that, as you rank for, when you rank number one, you're getting a significant amount of backlinks. Ahrefs did a study, and I think it was you're on an average number one ranking gets 20 to 30 unique passive backlinks. Just because you're ranking number one and someone does a search for that phrase, or it's another blogger, they see you ranking number one, they're going to grab your link and and link to it the, in their posts. It's just part of the natural progression. So as you go after low competition keywords and you rank in that number one, number two, number three spots, it builds these passive backlinks that creates your that makes your blog even stronger. So whether you are a high domain authority blogger or a low domain authority blogger, you still want to go after low competition keywords. Now, if you are in that lower range. Uh, 40 domain authority or lower, you have to go after low competition words. If you're just choosing keywords that you want to write about or recipes that you want to make, then you're not going to get traffic. You have to be intentional. The great thing about keyword research, when you do it right, either with HRS or SEMrush, or you just use Rank IQ and choose the words we've already found for you, the battle's already won by writing on these posts. You're going to have an incredible chance of not just ranking on the first page, but ranking in the first three to get traffic, as opposed to if you don't do keyword research, you're essentially flying blind and you're hoping that your content is great enough. But even with even if you have the best content and it's two times better than anything else out there, if the first page is dominated by domain authority, 80 to 90 sites, you're not going to get there. And even if you get there, you're going to be low on that first page. It's just, it's about being intentional and having a plan and going after low competition keywords that you can rank for. We're putting all the effort in, right? I mean, we're taking the time, so much time and energy to create this food and recipe and develop it and uh, write about it and edit. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. So if we're taking all the time for that, we want to make sure that our content is actually seen. And those numbers are kind of astounding from, what did you say? Like the top position was 40 something percent. And then once you get to number four, it's six. Yeah, we're talking about 10, 10 times the traffic for ranking number one, as opposed to the four to 10. 
And yes, it's huge. So you mentioned like everyone should be doing at least a percentage of low competition focused keywords. Are there any other mistakes that bloggers are making when it comes to finding keywords? Well, I, dealing with our audience and the users of Rank IQ, uh, there's a percentage of our users that are hanging on to their old tools and the way those old tools are ineffective. And the one area that comes up a lot is they'll, they'll be like, I'm using this other keyword tool in addition to Rank IQ, and the search volume says it's 50, but your estimated visitors per year is 680. Why is your yours wrong? And the problem that for even for SEOs that aren't experts, but pretty much all bloggers that have used other keyword tools, they're presented when they do a search with search volume. And search volume, all it means is how many times someone did a search on Google for that specific phrase. It's completely inaccurate. The only thing search volume should be used for for single phrase search volume is when you're trying to advertise on Google ads for that phrase. But because it's front and center and that's what they see when they do a when they do a search on a keyword tool, they are using that to make decisions. And we were the first tool to do estimated visitors per year. There's one other tool that, that does it now. Our our numbers are a little bit accurate. I hope all the other keyword tools make that transition to this because that's the real number, estimated visitors per year, not single phrase search volume. That's going to tell you what you can expect to get if you get on the first page. And our number is also is based upon where the lower domain authority blogs are ranking on the first page. So it's not saying, okay, there's a there's a low domain authority blog that ranks on page 10. There's nine high domain authority blogs in front of it. What is the number one ranking high domain authority blog getting in traffic? So it's, it's a real number that you can expect to get based upon all the different LSI words, variations of the keyword that you're getting that you can expect. So the biggest mistake when it comes to metrics is they put too much emphasis on search volume. Wow, I hadn't heard it explained quite like that, but that's really interesting. There's a huge discrepancy in numbers, but that's because your number is an actual number. And then I wanted to ask you about backlinks. So you mentioned that doing the strategy of finding the low competition keywords and then writing about maybe some roundups and non-recipe posts to support your other content is a good way to kind of inadvertently get backlinks. What are some other strategies that you recommend for getting backlinks? Well, one of the easiest is just podcast interviews. Just like I'm having a podcast interview with you right now in your show notes page, you're going to link to the website that I mentioned and pretty much 95% of uh, podcast interviewers are going to give you a do follow backlink in their show notes page. And when it comes to the amount of uh, food uh, podcasts, there's, not a lot of food blogger podcasts like yours, and you've got that niche there. But for a food blogger, there's all kinds of food podcasts that are out there that you can pitch them on coming onto the show. And a big portion of these podcasts are going to have high domain authority sites, and you're going to get that do follow backlink. So if you just, and all you have to do is come on the show and, and 
talk and answer some questions for 30 minutes to an hour. And there you go. It's, it doesn't get, doesn't get easier than that for getting a high quality backlink. The hardest part there is just, just going into uh, Apple podcasts, going into the food category and just, that's the, the best way to go. Because if you go into Apple podcasts and you see the, the most listened to uh, food podcasts, not only are you going to, those are going to be high domain authority sites that are, that are hosted for those podcasts, but they have a lot of following. So you'll get through, just through the mention, you'll get people coming to your, coming to your food blog. So just uh, make a plan to, to make a list of all the, the food blog podcast and just start sending emails. Most, most of the uh, food blog podcast have, they're, they're wanting to find people to interview. So it's not like you're having to say, okay, could you please link to my, to my blog in your blog post? You don't have to twist their arm. They are constantly looking for people to interview. All you have to do is either reach out through their contact page or their a direct email. And you're going to have a high percent of those emails returned with a, with an interview request. I love that recommendation. I have been delivering this message for a while now. I think it's so easy to get your message out there and to get your link out there just by all, like you said, all you have to do is show up and deliver your value and you don't even have to edit. You don't have to do anything. They do all the hard work. So I love that you recommended that. Are there any other strategies that you recommend for getting high quality backlinks? After podcast interviews, Harrow would be next to just help a reporter out. And with Harrow, it's just matter of being the first one to to do the pitch so when you get in harrow they send out an email with all of the potential uh or with all the reporters that are writing a an article and then you pitch them through this email and the key is being first and those emails come out at the same time every day uh, the best practice is to set an alarm on your phone five minutes before those emails come out and be ready to get that email and respond right away Typically, if you're the first one to, to respond, they see that email and it's, it's good enough, they're going to choose you most of the time. Whenever you do your, your pitch, you want to make sure, if you can, quickly find out if the website that, you're, that, it, that article is going to be published on is a domain authority 40 or higher. Sometimes they'll, they'll ask for extra information and and ideally, you want to be focusing on on blogs and websites that have high enough domain authority. So if you do get a backlink, it'll actually count. When you do send your pitch query, make sure that uh, you find out the person's first name that you're pitching. And in that email, use their first name. It makes a pretty, pretty big difference by just saying their name. It, it says that you took the time to, uh, to find out who they are. People love their first name. Yeah, it adds a little personal touch. I loved your tip about just setting your alarm because it comes out at the same time. I hadn't ever thought of that before. I kind of got out of the habit of using Haro too, but might check that out again. Anything else for backlinks? I think that's the what you should focus on. There's a lot of things out there to, to do backlinks, but you don't want to spread yourself too thin on, across all these different uh, crazy ways. You, low competition, keywords, which is part of your plan that's going to naturally get you passive backlinks than podcast interviews and error. And one last question before we start saying goodbye. 
What do you recommend for updating old content? How do we sort through it? For me, I have so much content that it's hard to know where to begin. Um, and then like, what stuff do I leave alone? Do you have a strategy for all of that? Now, the last series I just did in my podcast, The Blogging Millionaire, was on updating old blog posts. I'm gonna, I'll am gonna, i cover some of that here, but it was, it's, I don't have a course anymore, so my podcast isn't holding anything back. So this is the last four episodes, which was essentially a course on updating old blog posts. But the way I do it is I classify old blog posts into four quadrants. If you've ever read the seven habits of highly effective people. It's, it's similar to that. So the quadrant number one is going to be old blog posts that, that have or get significant traffic that have lost traffic in the last 12 months. This is called the content decay. Quadrant number two is going to be blog posts that are getting traffic, but rank number four are lower. Quadrant three is our posts that are ranking number one, number two, number three. Quadrant number four are posts that get zero to no traffic. So we'll start with quadrant number four. You don't want to spend any time on posts that do not get traffic. The chances of you taking a post that has zero traffic and turning it into something that has traffic are very small. Typically, bloggers write, a, this will be something they wrote about on a keyword they have no chance because of the competition, or they wrote an informational post on a commercial intent word. Commercial intent meaning that they would be showing things like Amazon, Walmart, them selling something. And let's say they wrote on yellow yarn and everything on the first page is Etsy, Amazon, Walmart, people selling yellow yarn. Your informational blog post isn't going to make it. So anything that's not getting traffic, don't spend time on it. And we move to quadrant number three, which is post ranking number one, two, or three. Ideally, you don't want to do anything with these posts. There are two exceptions where you would update a post that is ranking number one, number two, or number three with the target keyword. That would be if that post is ranking number three currently and the number one and number two post have superior content. That means that that post is going to eventually go from number three to number four and is going to move up into a higher quadrant. So the writings on the wall, you've got a post that's being outranked by better content. You need to go ahead and update that. The other one would be if you're getting outranked, your number two, number three, and the number one post, it's a list post, and they have a higher leading number than yours. So if you have the 25 best food blogging tips and someone else is outranking you now with the 40 best food blogging tips, in that case, you would update that content and the way you would update it to where it doesn't affect your existing rankings is you would go from your 25 and you would come up with 25 more tips so that you can have 10 more than the one in front of you, which would, the one outranking you was 40 you would get to 50. You would leave your first 25 tips intact and you would add the, the next 25 tips to the tail end. That way your existing post stays the same except for changing your title from 25 to 50 and for adding content to the tail end. Now, if you start adjusting 
content at the front end, the intro, and moving around some of the, your top 25 that's already there, that can endanger you because it, you could have basically points where people are exiting your page because of the content that you've moved around. And that could change the average time on page and push you down further. So the best practice for updating any post that's getting a lot of traffic already is to add content to the tail end and, and leave your existing content as much as it has, has been the same. Now the quadrant above that is quadrant number two. Uh, these are the posts that are ranking number four and higher that get traffic. And the reason why this is number two and, and outranks quadrant number three is because these posts have a lot of potential. You can, you can be ranking number nine for something and you can, if you move up from number nine to number, if you just move up one spot between number eight and number four, you can, you'll get a traffic increase of 30 to 50%. That's why these are important to look at those that you get traffic that you're not ranking in the top three, adding some more content, increasing the time on page. Once again, to the tail end of the post can make a difference between one spot or another. And finally, the quadrant number one, these are the posts that are hemorrhaging traffic, and that's why they're the most important. So you, whenever you're doing updating blog posts, you start with quadrant one post first. Get rid of all those, do all those posts that are losing traffic, that used to get significant traffic, and that are losing rankings. And then when you're done with quadrant number one, you'll move into quadrant number two, which is updating the posts that are getting traffic ranking number four or higher. And then after that, you'll assess quadrant number three. If there are any posts where you're ranking number three and then the two posts in front of you are, have superior traffic or you're getting outranked by someone that has a higher number of tips or tactics on a list post. But those are, those are the four quadrants to try to simplify them. I know in, in, our, in this podcast interview right now, you might be overwhelmed by what I'm saying. That's why there's, there's I think, an hour and 40 minutes of four podcasts that, that really go into the deep details of these four quadrants. But updating posts is very important. You should be spending 50% of your time updating posts and 50% of your time writing new posts. But the average blogger is constantly focused on pushing new content out the door. And what happens is they, they have what's called the leaky bucket syndrome. And that is when you are losing traffic from your old post and you're not able to see it because you're constantly doing new posts and everything looks fine. You're growing traffic and then a year goes by and you're like, well, I'm still growing my traffic. It's just not growing as fast. I just must be, I just must be slowing down, running out of better topics to write. And then finally it plateaus. And what's happening is all your new posts are doing great and they're performing, but your posts from two, three years ago are now being outranked by better content and all that traffic is leaking away. And that's why it's important to ideally once a quarter, but at the very least once a year, go through all go through your Google Analytics Google Search Console and and break down your old post into these four quadrants and see if there's any that need to be updated that are losing traffic so that you and then try to be preemptive and with the quadrant two post that so they don't lose traffic or that they can get higher rankings.
I love your podcast. It's so thorough. And I love just sitting down with a series because you do them in kind of little series and just getting my Google Analytics or Google Search Console open and just working as you talk through the things, the strategies. So I haven't done this one yet, but I'm really excited to dig into that because as I mentioned, I have a lot of old content. So definitely go check that out. And Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. This was such a valuable conversation. So thank you for sharing everything that you did. You're welcome. I was happy to be there. So we'll put together a show notes page for you, Brandon. If anyone wants to go peek at those, you can go to eatblogtalk.com forward slash rank IQ. And I ask all my guests this, Brandon, do you have a favorite quote or words of inspiration to leave us with today? I would say just probably Bible verse that with God, anything is possible. And he took me from having nothing and put me right next to my wife that led to an incredible family. He guided us uh, through my health condition, the cancer. He, he brought me through it to becoming a blogger. And then he, he showed me what it meant to serve others. And that made me a better blogger and a better business because before that, I was just constantly trying to get more traffic, make more money. And once I started thinking about how can I create the best post where it's going to help someone else? Or how can I create a business and give everything that I have to help them have success? That's when I truly found success personally and with my business. Wow, that was very well said. It kind of came full circle starting with your story. So thank you again so much for being here. And tell everyone, you kind of alluded to this, but tell everyone where they can find you online, on your podcast, Rank IQ, just kind of give us a wrap up of that. Yep, just uh, open your podcast app, go to and uh, do a search for Blogging Millionaire, and I'll pop up there. That's where I'm constantly on a, every month I'm giving growth hacks or going through uh, teaching sessions where I do series. Then for the business, it's rankiq.com, and that's it. All right. Well, thanks, Brandon. And thank you for listening today, food bloggers. I will see you in the next episode. We're glad you could join us on this episode of Eat Blog Talk. For more resources based on today's discussion, as well as show notes and an opportunity to be on a future episode of the show, be sure to head to eatblogtalk.com. If you feel that hunger for information, we'll be here to feed you on Eat Blog Talk.